This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. We're joined by our friend Matt Welch. He is the editor in chief of Reason Magazine. Mr. Welch, great to have you. Thank you very much. I'm editor at large now, Buck, owing to the size of my uh, waistband. Not editor in chief. Oh. P- pardon me, pardon me, editor, editor at large. At uh, large, what yeah. Is, I don't want to what is that? Uh, what is that? Does, that does that just mean that you're like you're so revered in the institution that you get to go and hang out on the beach and like file file? You know, when you feel like filing, is that what? Because that sounds good. I want to get editor at large status. Uh, what it does it means I don't spend time uh, managing people anymore, uh, and I don't uh, take part in uh, conference calls. So it's pretty sweet. That's awesome. This is like being a professor on sabbatical or something. All the benefits of tenure, but none of the drawbacks. Exciting well, there's stuff. a little bit of an expectation that I, uh, you know, uh, go on uh, the Buck Sexton show and I get out there in the world and that I write. I, I've got to increase right, the other aspects to justify this, of course. Right. You're 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 a product guy. You know, I, I get it. You know, you got you got to be creating content out there. Absolutely. Which is what we're doing right now, by the way. And yes. with that in mind, let me ask you about. Some stuff that is happening in the world. Bunch of things. I kind of want the the Welchian, uh, the Welchian touch on on all of them, uh, if you're willing. First, yeah. your 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 take on the uh, whole Trump wiretap allegation situation, media reporting on it, and all that all that jazz. Uh, you know his uh, uh, early morning uh, tweets and the fact that it's driven the uh, discussion for four or five days just reminds us that we have kind of an insane presidency on our hands. Let's, 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 like, let's keep it real for a second here. He said this stuff without talking to anybody, and he based it on a Breitbart article that was based on a Louise Mensch article that was anti-Trump. What the hell is he even talking about? And then, then everyone's sort of like uh, having to, to say, well, you know, he does have access to information, after all, even though he didn't base it here. Just craziness. Uh, at, at some point, it's just nuttiness. And he's fighting, I mean, the, the meta picture, as you know well, is that he went into office calling the CIA a bunch of Nazis, <laughs> and, uh, and he thinks that he can sort of get out 
in front of the future leaks, whatever they may contain. And they might just be, you know, uh, penny-ante stuff. I, I mean, I think a lot of this, these Russia leaks, uh, I mean, what they've exposed more than anything else is that Trump world people uh, have been, there's a pattern of dissembling and occasionally lying about contacts that don't on the surface look like they're that big of a deal. You know, whatever Sessions did with the Russian ambassador, unless there is going to be a leak in a transcript soon, which I presume there probably will be, uh, it doesn't look like that big of a deal, so why not just kind of cough it up and move on? Um, that is much more of a big deal that, to me so far, uh, the, the way that they dealt with it than the underlying conduct. So uh, he's... Uh, we are in this just bizarre, bizarre world thing right now, and Democrats are going way over their skis, demanding Sessions' resignation. I would like, I would love Sessions to resign because he's terrible. Uh, but uh, he didn't commit perjury. He said a, a sentence that wasn't true in, in answer to a question that wasn't specific, and eh, that's that, that's what happened. So, uh, yeah, I can uh, tell you that. By the way, the the I have I have secret magic sources uh, when you're inside of government. One, it, it's a big. Even whether you're the president or you're a lowly, a lowly, lowly, you know, CIA analyst, as yours truly was, uh, you, you never, you never can play the in any kind of uh, policy discussion or anything at all in any professional setting. You're not allowed to play the well. I know more than you about that subject, so I'm right because I have access to. You know, the, the, I remember I was told once more or less, you know, if, if, that's the kind of thing where if, if you say it in a civilian agency meeting, your superior is going to uh, ac- absolutely take you to the woodshed afterwards. Even if technically speaking, you're right. You just never are allowed. You're never allowed to say that. Like, well, I have information you don't have. And they're like, if you say it to anybody in the military, well, sir, I have a TS clear and they're going to punch you and everyone's going to say they were right. <laughs> so I was yeah, like, uh, OK, not not a card to play. Never pull the well, I have. Uh, and with Trump on this stuff, it's like, yeah, it, if he had this stuff, I would I would assume he would tell us. Um, but I do think that you uh, to be fair, Mr. Welch, there were a lot of reports out there about with specificity about counterintelligence investigations of Trump personnel run by you mentioned mention in Heat Street. I don't know her deal, by the way. So what's her deal uh, real quick? She- uh, it's complicated. She was a conservative uh, uh, member, I think, of the House of Lords. Could have been an MP, maybe an MP uh, in in, uh, in England. She got in trouble with a bunch of different things. She's out here, the editor of Heat Street, which is kind of an in-house Murdoch Empire libertarianish. Rag that does a lot of uh, uh, campus outrage stories, but she's got her teeth into this one and published in November. I think the first uh, uh, thing that there was a FISA court uh, approval on something on a, a communication that had to do with Trump World. Uh, what she I don't think has gotten particularly right or knowledgeable uh, is who was the target of that FISA court approval? Was it a Russian bank or was it actual Trump personnel? I tend to think, looking at the reporting and talking to people I know who have some clue about this stuff, that it was a, I mean, it's FISA court. It's supposed to be about foreign intelligence. So it was probably, they probably started from the Russian bank and worked backward and caught people up uh, in the web of it. So, um, but yeah, she's, I mean, she believes that Andrew Breitbart was murdered uh, by Putin. So she's got some conspiratorial elements uh, to her. I like her. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second. Is that for realsies? She thinks no, that? 
That's though she has tweeted that. I don't know what her interior world is like, but she has tweeted that she believes that Andrew Breitbart was murdered by Putin. She's has she's published this whole thing. It's, it's a, a phenomenal rabbit hole to go down to called the Carolina Conspiracy that all talks about uh, this way that uh, uh, Russian hackers got into and and Breitbart world people got into Anthony Weiner's email, and that's what caused James Comey to do X and Y. It's it's uh, it's bonkers, wow, but it's very it, it, compelling. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, uh, is this a thing that I can look up online somewhere and read about the Carolina conspiracy? Just Google it. You'll find it. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty insane uh, and entertaining, and, oh, I, and wow. I don't recommend believing it. Uh, but it, it, No, it, no, that, that, uh, but this is, this is uh, interesting to hear that part of it. But you know, the New York Times did have its piece out, and it didn't, get any, uh, it didn't get any pushback or criticism about the surveillance of, con- I'm assuming, of conversations or communications. They said a counterintelligence investigation which usually specifies a few things of Trump campaign aides, and they even name the aides in the article, and everybody was taking that as you know that's fine. Well, why was it fine then and not fine now? That that, that would that would be the answer that I would want from you know everyone at C- everyone at CNN and and the New York Times newsroom and everywhere else is kind of like oh this is ridiculous this allegation of wiretapping, and then of course people have brought up was it a is the FISA warrant request real or not? Uh, meanwhile, if Trump aides were really under surveillance for either it's either in a counterintelligence counterespionage operation or it's a criminal operation. Either way, if there's surveillance going on of them, that would seem to be a big deal. And yet I think people didn't didn't treat it like it was a big deal because it's well, of course, I mean, we all believe this Russia conspiracy. And I'm one of the people who doesn't believe the Russia conspiracy. So that's why I'm sort of I sit around saying, okay. I, I, I believe fully well that Russia was happy to muck up uh, in, in, as much as it can to get involved in the election here. What I don't believe yeah, sure. is the next 12 uh, connected dots, which is that they somehow hacked the election. That's garbage. They didn't. We voted. They tallied the votes. Trump won, fair and square. That's really the end of that story, and I, I wish people would. But, but, you, but you know, and I think you'd agree that this is the, the, the insinuation, and it's more than that sometimes. I mean, you've got Maxine Waters. You've got Nancy Pelosi. These are members of Congress who are just straight up saying, Trump is part of some Russia axis, some Russia conspiracy that threw the election and he's now he's now effectively a, a Russian agent or is a Russian agent of influence in the United States. They say stuff along those lines. I mean, they say stuff that's just that crazy. And I, I know there are people there. There are people in the media who believe that they're that they're, they're, it's just a matter of time. We have a congressional investigation that they say has to happen. We've got to have a special process, a special prosecutor for what? Yeah, I was going to ask this question sure. because I mean, I the special prosecutor is going to find that Paul Manafort was sitting down with a bunch of, you know, shady looking Russian FSB guys or something in a cafe in, uh, you know, I, I don't know, in, in Ukraine. And he's we like, yeah, hack it, hack into hack into. Uh, well, yeah, we already know he's meeting with shady people in Ukraine, but but it, I, they would assume, I, I think, or they're assuming that he has to be asking them hack into John Podesta's email account, or yeah, let's go forward with that. I'm not even sure what they think the crime would necessarily be. You know, I, it's a, uh, I'm glad that you put it that way. I, I've been on MSNBC each of the last four days. So, uh, Ooh, I tell cannot, us about that. Uh, that sounds interesting. Well, well, part of it has been that on air and off, I ask everybody, like, what do you think is at the end of your particular rainbow on this? Like, seriously, what do you think that they sat down and talked about that was so damning, as opposed to 
um, what seems the most likely, which is that there is a genuine alignment of interests here. You understand why Putin would favor Trump. He favors uh, Le Pen and the National Front in, in, uh, in uh, France for the same reason. Uh, Victor Orban and Fidesz in Hungary for the same reason. He likes Western politicians who campaign against multilateral Western institutions in the name of nationalism. It's a, that, that's what he wants to do. He wants to roll back NATO and the EU and kind of this internationalist thing because he sees it as a reminder and a threat against what uh, his biggest cause, reason for being alive uh, is, which is sort of a, to reconstitute the old Soviet Union or at least to act on the loss of the old uh, Soviet Union. It, that makes total sense. So um, instead of, of actually going to where that makes sense and you would understand why people would get along and, and share these interests uh, and it would even be reciprocal at some point, people are assuming, and this is the best answer that I got, um, in terms of what, what lies underneath the conspiracy. It's like, well, uh, maybe they told the Trump campaign that they had information, that they had hacked into the Republican uh, emails as well, and that, in or, that, they, that they had better be nice and change the wording in the Republican Party platform towards Ukraine, or else those emails are going to come out. So that there's some, there's some kind of threat or whip hand there. Uh, that's the most plausible by boy which i don't think it's actually plausible um but that's the only one that even begins to make any kind of sense to me um on any kind of conspiratorial front and i should say uh, the the thing that's arguing in their favor is just that we are now way beyond like rule of three when it comes to pattern of bizarre dissembling here between carter page uh especially uh, uh jeff sessions michael flynn there's a pattern here of saying x and then leak comes out proving that X is not true. And then you come back and say, well, actually, uh, you know, I did, things were different than I thought. So uh, people act Wait, like but, that. Well, hold, one second. To, to that point, Matt, if I may, uh, anybody yeah. who's ever been through or, or been, been through either a law enforcement proceeding or has worked in law enforcement or dealt with uh, interrogation in an intelligence capacity will tell you that a big part of. Uh, you know, a, a big part of getting certain answers is creating the the pressure in the environment that you sit somebody down and you're telling them, well, you know, you're going to tell us this or or else the following is going to happen to you or you're going to answer questions about this very sensitive topic or this area where, you know, you could be in jeopardy and you keep going and going and going until you get somebody to say something wrong. And then law enforcement actually oftentimes loves to just get somebody on the wrong statement, as we know, and, and go from there. I, the the Russia conspiracy has been pushed from the day really or the days after the election, uh, and when I mean the conspiracy, I don't mean the hacking is not a conspiracy to me. That I I can buy that, you can buy that, that's fine. But that there was some Trump collusion, active uh, active participation from the Trump side in active measures. They've been pushing the story so much, so I feel like when somebody like Flynn is being asked about this, his you know gut reaction would be to say, no, you know, I I didn't I, I didn't talk to the you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't talk to the Russian ambassador. We didn't talk about that thing because he's trying to avoid it, not because there's some great, you know, I just think it's much less interesting than people want to believe it is. I think it's just human nature when you realize that something has been blown up into a big issue. You know, you don't want to talk about it. I mean, I think, I, of, I, you know, Scooter Libby with the Valerie Plame thing, he didn't do anything wrong, but they got they were able to get him on a, on a technicality of a statement that he made about who said what to whom at some point. And maybe he made it because. He thought he could get, you know, he was trying to just escape the perjury trap and fell into it. But that was all they got him on. I feel like they're turning up the pressure on all these different Trump people. And yes, yeah, I mean, the Jeff Sessions thing, was, was he really? Yeah, I understand what he said wasn't wise in the context of all the stuff that's going on. But do you think he was really trying to lie? 
Uh, I, look, he said the sentence, I didn't have communications with the Russians. Uh, that sentence is an untrue sentence. Now, he said it. It's, I don't think it's perjury. I think he, you know, it was in response to kind of a blizzard of, of, of a question that included brand new information that he hadn't processed before and other things like that. Uh, I mean, I agree with you in terms of the pressure and the relentlessness of it. Um, but still, I think the, the incidence of, of this uh, is enough to say that there's something um, just there's just something odd, not that something that proves anything, but that it's odd. For instance, uh, I mean, the, the Democrats probably spent during the confirmation hearings, at least, uh, equal time, if not more time, grilling the various candidates in all cabinet agencies about things having to do with race or racism, things like that. And yet, that didn't really produce a whole lot of of you know. Uh, uh, fist-thumping outrage, potential, like, oh, I misremembered kind of things. It's only the Russia stuff, and it's a lot of people. So that's screwy, and I want an explanation for that. Uh, but like you, I don't really think that there is a there there. I mean, I could be a lack of imagination on my part. Part of me wants to believe it. As you know, I, if, I probably hate Vladimir Putin even more than you do. We can have a hate-off uh, with him. And, uh, and I think that America has completely abdicated its intelligence duties in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and Central Europe in particular, and that, and I've been talking about that with you and, and you as well for the last seven years. I mean, this is this has been a thing. Um, so, like, I'm I'm I should be in conditions ready to believe all this, and I just don't. Like, I, I think I think the underlying behavior, unless something big comes over the transom, is pretty Mickey Mouse stuff. So it's this bizarre world thing that we're in right now. Yeah, uh, I think that's I think it's all fair. I just. Also, I, I am amazed, and, and this is the last thing I'll we'll have to. Well, actually, now we got another minute or two. Uh, that there's such a there. How much time do I have? Uh, Thirty. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, so uh, I've got people in the media that believe this international conspiracy, and then Trump says this thing about wiretapping, and all of a sudden it's well, he he's a crazy person. That's that's a conspiracy with no evidence, and and a lot of people look at them and say. Let's assume even that that's entirely true, and I think it it probably is true that you know well it's certainly true what he tweeted out isn't word for word accurate, but even if the whole the underlying sentiment of of, of wasn't accurate, uh, they believe the Russia conspiracy, and I'm still waiting for any actual evidence that that is true, other than just it looks it looks shady. I agree, there's some weird stuff going on here though. Matt Welch, everybody, is editor at large of Thank Reason you. Magazine. He is out there rocking and rolling. Uh, Matt, come hang out with us on the night show soon. How about that? Love to. I'm here for All you. Right, my man. Great great to talk to you. We'll do it soon. And uh, Team Buck, we got to hit a quick break. I'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. 
Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. I've read a little bit more about this uh, this incident at, at Middlebury College, which, of course, reminds me very much. It's a very similar school. I've never been there, but it's similar size, and it's part of the same athletic conference and all that same general region of the country. I'm sure its average class is pretty indistinguishable from the classes I took at Amherst in terms of the people in it and the general ethos and uh, and vibe. And, and I didn't know that the woman, I mean, the woman who was injured so Charles Murray, who we've actually had on the show before, uh, he wrote The Bell Curve, which uh, dove into data on IQ and, and just completely set the left uh, with set the left alight with fury. I mean, they were they were really outraged about that one. Um, they invited him up to uh, Middlebury. I think. Uh, yeah, I've told you about this. They invited him up to Middlebury. He's supposed to speak. And. There, there is this change. I mean, it reminds me, the description of what was happening when he was supposed to talk reminds me quite a lot of what I dealt with, or what I saw, I should say, when Justice Scalia spoke at Amherst. You've got a sitting Supreme Court justice who is going to speak at Amherst College, and students in the uh, show up in the audience, and they're, all, they're wearing black armbands, and some are standing with their back, they stand in turn with their backs to him as some show of defiance. I mean, he's a sitting Supreme Court justice deigning to uh, hang out at, or at my tiny little liberal arts college while I was a student there, the entire political science department boycott his speech, um, with the exception of my advisor and maybe one or two other professors. Uh, but they, they, they openly signed this letter saying they boycott his speech because he's such a vile and hateful person. His, his daughter was a student there. It was a year or two ahead of me. It was actually a very nice girl. I liked her. And, and they acted like complete, you know, the people, the students just acted like total lunatics. He gave a good speech, though. And people did get to hear it, whether they liked it or not. With Charles Murray up at Middlebury, he didn't even get to give the speech. This is what has changed now on campuses. You can be invited to speak on campus, cleared by the administration. You go to speak, and then a bunch of students, the heckler's video, uh, video the heckler's veto is alive and well. And they'll stop you from being able to have your say. And then they'll even assault you afterwards. They assaulted a woman escorting Charles Murray to a car who was a professor who was there to give a counterpoint to his ideas. These kids are such babyish little morons that they hurt the professor who's specifically playing the role of introducing this guy and then is going to counterpoint him. They uh, injured her neck. She had to wear a neck brace after this. Well done, progressives, you jerks. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. 
All right, everybody, we're joined by James Kerchick. He's a fellow at the Foreign Policy uh, Policy Initiative and the author of the brand new book. It's out today, in fact, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age on Amazon.com. For those of you who want to go check it out, and you should. James, thanks for calling us. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, uh, if you would, please. We got we got plenty of time, so take your time. Walk us through a bit of the thesis of the book, and then we'll get into some of the details and the arguments you make. Well, I guess I'd say that uh, Europe is really facing the biggest crisis collectively uh, since the Cold War, and it's on multiple fronts. It's the threat from Russia, which is you know still waging a war in Ukraine and obviously increasing its military uh, spending in ways we haven't seen in a very long time. It's the disintegration of the European Union, which uh, has begun already with with Brexit. Uh, It's the rise of nationalism and populism uh, on the far right, but also the far left. It's Islamism um, and the increase of Islamic terrorist attacks and the rise of ISIS in Europe uh, and the the also concomitant rise of anti-Semitism. Um, which is obviously one of the probably the worst uh, tradition in, in European history um, and an ongoing economic crisis. You know, almost 10 years now after the, the crash of 2008, uh, the Eurozone has barely any growth. Um, so these are all uh, crises that I think combined are um, representing a, a really difficult uh, period in European history and something that I think Americans uh, should should care about. Now, by the way, the economy, we were told uh, for a while that the, the EU, that uh, because Greece obviously was in terrible shape, and then it was just a matter of time before uh, Spain and, and then Italy would follow, and then the dominoes would fall, and we were told this a lot, and this could be the end of the Eurozone. Th- th- that didn't happen, but they didn't exactly fix everything either, right? What did happen? Yeah, it's kind of stagnant, you know? I mean, Greece and uh, so Spain and Italy have obviously not gone the way of Greece yet, but they still have very high youth unemployment. You know, in a country like Spain, I think it's like, you know, 40%, something really high. Um, So it's not getting better. It's not exactly getting worse in those places, but it's not getting better. And, you know, obviously, the longer these sorts of problems persist, you know, the more attractive um, the demagogues in my book subtitle become. I think their, their message starts to resonate more um, in, in times of economic uncertainty. Who are the main figures in this populist nationalism that you talk about in the book? Well, they really uh, run the gamut. I mean, I would uh, you know, start with a figure like Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of Hungary, um, who has come out publicly in favor of what he calls illiberal democracy. And that was back in 2014, you know, before anyone had heard of Donald Trump running for president. Um, but then also, you know, on the left, I would point to the Syriza party in Greece. Um, and these are basically, you know, neo-Marxists, um, not sort of liberals in the classical sense of the term, to say the least. Um, Marine Le Pen in France, of the National Front. Uh, Geert Wilders, who's the leader of, um, who's, who's running for prime minister in, in Holland next week, and they're having big elections there. Um, so there's there's lots of figures. But those are the, mains when I, the main ones, uh, I would say. And I should also... Add to that list um, uh, Nigel Farage, who's the former leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, um, who I would also put in that in that category of, of, of being a nationalist. Now, I see here in the Amazon description of the book that you talk about this, the shallow. This is a quote from an excerpt here, or not an excerpt yeah. from the book, but from the description of yeah. it on Amazon. 
a shallow disingenuousness of the leaders who pushed for Brexit. So why, why were they disingenuous and, and shallow? I think a lot of the promises that they were making were not uh, uh, in accordance with the facts. I mean, you often heard people talk about the euro and why that was bad for Britain. But, I mean, Britain is not in the euro. Um, and so it was not being held responsible for what was going on in Greece. British taxpayers were not having to bail out you know, Greece in the way the Germans were. But th- th- this argument was constantly being put forth, um, as was an argument several months before the Brexit vote that Britain would be swarmed with Turks because Turkey was imminently about to join the European Union, which is just completely not true. I mean, for the 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 prospect of Turkey joining the EU is so far off in the future and, and unlikely to ever happen, really, because you need all all the members of the EU have to agree to a new member joining. And you already had several countries that had pretty made had made it pretty clear that Turkey was not going to join. Um, and then there was a, a pretty infamous promise that was made by leaders of the Brexit campaign that if Britain got out of the EU, they'd be able to spend something like 350 million more pounds per week on their national health service. And then, and then immediately after the vote happened, they basically came out and said, yes, this, this number was completely made up and exaggerated. So there was just a lot of, I think, false information going on. Also, the the uh, the number of laws that um, Britain has that are basically dictated or come out of Brussels, out of the EU parliament. It's really only something like 12 or 13 percent, but you had people like Farage again insisting that it was above 60 or even 70 percent. So there was just a lot of, you know, bad information that was being put out there. And if you had looked at the, you know, the British media was so Eurosceptic to begin with, um, particularly in the in the tabloid media for, for decades, it sort of created this environment where I think any accusation that you made about, you know, Europe would be believed, no matter how far-fetched or inaccurate. Now, uh, how much of the cultural impact of the multicultural ethic uh, and, and the, the diversity uh, yeah. the diversity ideology that we see in this country, but in Europe and in, in some cases, in some of the northern Euro- uh, European yeah. countries in particular, it's taken on a an almost religious zeal. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, multiculturalism is our, is our strength. And how much of what you see happening here on the political side do you think is, in, at some level, a popular revolt against what is a, in, for some people, a clearly dubious policy, especially when you yeah, look at I some think, of the countries, the smaller countries that have brought in. Go, go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's actually an excellent point. And I, and I raised this, you know, about two weeks ago when this whole thing with Sweden came up with Donald Trump. And, you know, he made the point not very well. He was, he was confused. People thought he was making up a terrorist attack when really what he was talking about was something he had seen on Fox News. And then, you know, the great and the good, they all kind of mocked Donald Trump and they tried to portray Sweden as this, you know, wonderful multicultural utopia. Um, and how dare anyone, you know, say otherwise. And, um, you know, I think the truth was kind of somewhere in the middle. I mean, it wasn't as bad as I think Trump was trying to portray it as, but it's clearly not this, you know, social democratic paradise. And yeah, well, there, there were there were riots in a, in a Muslim majority suburb exactly. 24 hours after he made the comment where they were lighting police cars on fire or at least cars on fire. I think they yeah, attacked yeah, police officers. And that too. had happened in that same yeah. neighborhood, Rinkby, before. Um, and it's called a no go zone. And I remember, you know, about two years ago, I think after the attacks in France, when that term was used, people got very angry in France. I think I think the mayor of Paris even threatened to sue Fox News. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I mean, but, the, but these do exist. I mean, they, they do exist. And they're. 
Um, they are in certain areas of France, certainly in Sweden. Um, there's actually a friend of mine who's a Swedish journalist who did an interview a couple days ago with um, the head of the ambulance union. Uh, he's an ambulance worker, a paramedic. And they told her, you know, we can't go into certain neighborhoods without armed security, without, without police officers guarding us. It's not safe. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to make, make the point that Donald Trump makes. I think he goes a little bit too far. Um, but I also think that the kind of utopian vision that is that is given of places like Sweden is not true. And what's interesting is that, you know, Chatham House, which is a very respected British think tank, they did a survey of European public opinion. And they found that in eight out of 10 European countries, a majority of Europeans in those countries supported banning all Muslim immigration. Now, does, that sound, does that sound familiar to you? That's exactly the policy that Donald Trump proposed to great controversy and people you know, calling him a fascist and whatnot, particularly in Europe. And then it comes out that majorities of actual European citizens uh, uh, agree with him. And I think it just shows you the, you know, the gap in the public opinion versus the elite opinion when it comes oh, to yeah. questions of, Im- of Im- Im- immigration and national security and, and identity. And well, whatnot. this is the and great I, unspoken. Know, not, yeah. Go ahead, James. Go ahead. I was just going to say that this this is the great unspoken. I mean, this is an important part of all this because this is the big unspoken point of debate, which is that whenever we talk about in this country, uh, the Trump policy about immigration and uh, banning temporarily or, you know, without getting into the details and the specific fights over the language and everything else about the immigration executive order. uh, I think there are a lot of people who see it as the start of also pushing back against or, or or preventing rather not not even pushing back it's uh, mass Muslim migration because they right. culturally don't want it. It's not just a security yeah. concern. We don't talk about it here, but in Europe they are having that discussion. As you point out, that's mainstream in Europe. They they just don't exactly. want to be full of Muslim immigrants in some of these countries. Right. That's and, the that's right. the and sentiment. This is, this is another yeah that, that that's a good point. And this is another reason why I thought it was sort of silly for Trump to bring up Sweden as as a warning to America because. You know, in America, we're blessed. We have oceans on either side. I mean, the, the the prospect of mass Muslim immigration coming to America and the numbers that they've seen in Europe over the past you know two years, it's impossible. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and, and so I thought it was kind of you know inappropriate for him to even bring this up. It's not something that Americans need to worry about. Um, but going you know, but going back to the Europe question, I think yeah, these are legitimate concerns, and we should be able to talk about them at least without someone, you know, automatically being accused of being a racist. And obviously there are some people who are racist and bigots and they should be called out for it. But when you, but I mean, I'll just be out front, you know, I don't support personally banning all immigration from Muslim countries, but I don't want to see those people like Geert Wilders or on the far right. I don't want to see them come to power politically. And I think the best way to kind of remove the potency from their arguments is to engage on these issues, to actually discuss them in an honest and respectful way. Um, because if you don't do that, if you just if you just ignore the problems and you just you know call anyone who disagrees with you a racist or a bigot like they do in Sweden, I mean the Sweden Democrats, which is a far right party that that um, really started as a neo Nazi party, they're the second most popular party in Sweden, and I think that's because right. Well, no I, I, one but else- I think the normal Swedish people, I'm guessing, because I've seen this in other European contexts, they know that if you ask the average mayor of a large city, representative in the parliament or what have you, you know, the average, not, I mean, obviously there are some far right parties and some anti-immigrant parties that have, that have gotten a lot more powerful. But if you said, even in a small country like the Netherlands, well, what if, what if we were going to let in a half a million refugees next year? We have a total population of what, 10 million people. We're going to let in a half a million refugees next year because we should really take this diversity stuff to the next level and we should be welcoming. Would you be okay with that? A lot of them would say yes. 
And a lot of people, I think, realize that's a problem. <laughs> they have an issue with that. Some of them would say yes, but I mean, I think um, a lot of them would say no. But I think the problem well, well, now, I think a lot of them now would have said no, but that's because of what's yeah. been happening. Yeah, sure, sure. But I think, like, if you look at Sweden, there was this sort of consensus, this political elite, you know, on the center right and the center left. They basically had the same immigration policy, and anyone who questioned it was, you know, was was castigated. And I think what they thought was, well, if we just ignore this issue and treat anyone who disagrees with us as being, you know, out of bounds then it'll just go away. The concerns about it will just go away. And what happened was the opposite. And is that you see all these people there now because no one else will talk about something like immigration and national identity. All those people who are concerned about it, they're supporting the far right because the responsible political leaders in the center, you know, did not give them an avenue, did not give them a, a place where they could, um, you know, express their, their political views. And so I think you're really seeing the negative consequences of this kind of you know, um, overly politically correct, uh, multicultural, you know, worldview is, is having co- the completely opposite effects that, that the people who have been promoting it intended. Well, James, I'm having a lot of fun talking to you about the, the thesis of your book and the things that you, you touch on here. So I can uh, tell everybody listening, definitely check it out. James Kerchick is the author. He also writes for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the book is The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. It's on Amazon.com right now. James, really appreciate the time and the conversation today. Uh, Come back soon. Thanks. Anytime. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show? All right, team. Welcome back. You know, I'm I'm going to be talking about this more tonight on the on the night show, uh, six to nine Eastern. Buck Sexton with America Now. Uh, but I, I just have got to say to you, the so far what I'm seeing with the health care bill, uh, uh, looking it over, this is not what we've been waiting all of this time for. This is not. Uh, <laughs> this is not what I've. You know, we we were told. And let's just let's just keep it real here. Let's keep it 100 percent real. We were told that Obamacare was a constitution destroying, uh, health care ruining, tax riddled, anti freedom monstrosity. And we were told that for years. And, and I, by the way, I, I do think that that's true. I'm not saying that that is not true. But we were told all of that. And then. uh we're now being told, well, there are some parts of it that are that are pretty good. We're going to keep some of those. And we don't want to take some of the other parts of it that aren't so bad and just throw those out. And yeah, okay, it's a phased process. I see the GOP saying that now. It's a phased process. Well, they should probably let us know that before we see the House GOP bill. And this is now supposed to be reflective of all these efforts for all of this time, uh, these efforts to get something down on paper that we can all vote for that or we can all support i mean we don't get to vote well we get to vote for the people who vote for it uh i'm not seeing how if i lost my job today i'm not seeing how i'd be able to or if i left i could buy a health care plan that i actually want that would cover my needs that's reasonable that has good doctor networks that no i'm not, I'm not seeing that there's an ex- there's instead of subsidies there's tax credits uh, this is not repeal and replace so much as it is 
you know, shift and adjust. Uh, and that's not what we were told we were going to get here. Now, I know that it's still early and that we got to wait and they're saying there are phases. But it's not like we haven't been waiting for a while. This law is six years old, everybody. Seven years old now. So I would like to know what's going on here. All right. Join me tonight on Buck Saxon with America Now. I listen to the iHeartRadio app. And uh, until then, my friends, shield tie. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.